Chapter thirty six of Easy Pop and Joy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sarah. Easy Pop and Joy by Anthony Trollope. Chapter thirty six. Pop and Joy is Pop and Joy. Then came Lady Brabazon's party. Lord George said nothing further to his wife about Jack de Baron for some days after that storm in Berkeley Square, nor did she to him. She was quite contented that matters should remain as they now were. She had vindicated herself, and if he made no further accusation, she was willing to be appeased. He was by no means contented, but as a day had been fixed for them to leave London, and that day was now but a month absent, he hardly knew how to insist upon an alteration of their plans. If he did so, he must declare war against the Dean, and for a time against his wife also. He postponed, therefore, any decision, and allowed matters to go on as they were. Mary was no doubt triumphant in her spirit. She had conquered him for a time, and felt that it was so. But she was, on that account, more tender and observant to him than ever. She even offered to give up Lady Brabazon's party altogether. She did not much care for Lady Brabazon's party, and was willing to make a sacrifice that was perhaps no sacrifice but to this he did not assent. He declared himself to be quite ready for Lady Brabazon's party, and to Lady Brabazon's party they went. As she was on the staircase, she asked him a question. Do you mind my having a waltz tonight? He could not bring himself, for the moment, to be stern enough to refuse. He knew that the pernicious man would not be there. He was quite sure that the question was not asked in reference to the pernicious man. He did not understand, as he should have done, that a claim was being made for general emancipation, and he muttered something which was intended to imply assent. Soon afterwards she took two or three turns with a stout middle-aged gentleman, a count somebody, who was connected with the German embassy. Nothing on earth could have been more harmless or apparently uninteresting. Then she signified to him that she had done a duty to Lady Brabazon and was quite ready to go home. I'm not particularly bored, he said. Don't mind me. But I am, she whispered, laughing. And as I know you don't care about it, you might as well take me away. So he took her home. They were not there above half an hour, but she carried a point about the waltzing. On the next day, the dean came to town to attend a meeting at Mr. Battle's chambers by appointment. Lord George met him there, of course, as they were, at any rate, supposed to act in strict concert. 
But on these days the dean did not stay in Monster Court when in London. He would always visit his daughter, but would endeavour to do so in her husband's absence, and was unwilling even to dine there. We shall be better friends down at Brotherton, he said to her. He is always angry with me after discussing this affair of his brother's, and I'm not quite sure that he likes seeing me here. This he had said on a previous occasion, and now the two men met in Lincoln's Inn Fields, not having even gone there together. At this meeting, the lawyer told them a strange story, and one which, to the dean, was most unsatisfactory, one which irresolutely determined to disbelieve. The Marcus, said Mr. Battle, had certainly gone through two marriage ceremonies with the Italian lady, one before the death and one after the death of her first reputed husband, and as certainly the so-called Popenjoy had been born before the second ceremony, so much the dean believed very easily, and the information tallied altogether with his own views. If this was so, the so-called Popenjoy could not be a real Popenjoy, and his daughter would be the Marchioness of Brotherton, when this wicked ape of a Marquis should die, and her son, should she have one, would be the future Marquis. But then there came the remainder of the lawyer's story. Mr. Battle was inclined, from all that he had learned, to believe that the Marchioness had never really been married at all to the man whose name she had first borne, and that the second marriage had been celebrated merely to save appearances. "'What appearances?' exclaimed the dean. Mr. Battle shrugged his shoulders. Lord George sat in gloomy silence. "'I don't believe a word of it,' said the dean. Then the lawyer went on with his story. This lady had been betrothed early in life to the Marchese Luigi, but the man had become insane, partially insane, and by fits and starts. For some reason, not as yet understood, which might probably never be understood, the lady's family had thought it expedient that the lady should bear the name of the man to whom she was to be married. She had done so for some years, and had been in possession of some income belonging to him. But Mr. Battle was of opinion that she had never been Luigi's wife. Further inquiries might possibly be made, and might add to further results. But they would be very expensive. A good deal of money had already been spent. What did Lord George wish? I think we've done enough said Lord George slowly, thinking also that he had been already constrained to do much too much. It must be followed out to the end, said the dean. What, here is a woman who professed for years to be a man's wife, who bore his name, who was believed by everybody to have been his wife? I did not say that, Mr. Dean, interrupted the lawyer, who waved in the man's revenues as his wife, and even bore his title, and now 
in such an emergency as this, we are to take a cock and bull story as gospel. Remember, Mr. Battle, what is at stake? Very much is at stake, Mr. Dean, and therefore these inquiries have been made at very great expense. But our own evidence, as far as it goes, is all against us. The Luigi family say that there was no marriage. Her family say that there was, but cannot prove it. The child may die, you know. Why should he die? asked Lord George. I am trying the matter all round, you know. I am told the poor child is in ill health. One has got to look at probabilities. Of course, you do not abandon a right by not prosecuting it now. It would be a cruelty to the boy to let him be brought up as Lord Popenjoy and afterwards dispossessed, said the dean. You gentlemen must decide, said the lawyer. I only say that I do not recommend further steps. I will do nothing further, said Lord George. In the first place, I cannot afford it. We will manage that between us, said the dean. We need not trouble Mr. Battle with that. Mr. Battle will not fear, but at all expenses will be paid. Not in the least, said Mr. Battle, smiling. I do not at all believe the story, said the dean. It does not sound like truth. If I spent my last shilling in sifting the matter to the bottom, I would go on with it. Though I were obliged to leave England for twelve months myself, I would do it. A man is bound to ascertain his own rights. I will have nothing more to do with it, said Lord George, rising from his chair. As much has been done as duty required, perhaps more. Mr. Battle, good morning. If we could know as soon as possible what this unfortunate affair has cost, I shall be obliged. He asked his father-in-law to accompany him, but the dean said that he would speak a word or two further with Mr. Battle and remained. At his club, Lord George was much surprised to find a note from his brother. The note was as follows. Would you mind coming to me here tomorrow or the next day at three? B. Scumberg's Hotel, Tuesday. This to Lord George was very strange indeed. He could not but remember all the circumstances of his former visit to his brother, how he had been insulted, how his wife had been vilified, how his brother had heaped scorn on him. At first he thought that he was bound to refuse to do as he was asked. But why should his brother ask him? And his brother was his brother the head of his family. He decided at last that he would go, and left a note himself at Scumberg's Hotel that evening, saying that he would be there on the morrow. He was very much perplexed in spirit as he thought of the coming interview. He went to the Dean's Club and to the Dean's Hotel, hoping to find the Dean, and thinking that he had consented to act with the Dean against his brother, he was bound in honour to let the dean know of the new phase in the affair. 
but he did not find his father-in-law. The dean returned to Brotherton on the following morning, and therefore knew nothing of this meeting till some days after it had taken place. The language which the Marquis had used to his brother, they were lost together, had been such as to render any friendly intercourse almost impossible, and then the mingled bitterness, frivolity, and wickedness of his brother made every tone of the man's voice and every glance of his eye distasteful to Lord George. Lord George was always honest, was generally serious, and never malicious. There could be no greater contrast than that which had been produced between the brothers, either by difference of disposition from their birth, or by the varied circumstances of a residence on an Italian lake, and one at Manor Cross. The Marcus thought his brother to be a fool, and did not scruple to say so on all occasions. Lord George felt that his brother was a knave, but would not have so called him on any consideration. The Marcus, on sending for his brother, hoped that even after all that had passed, he might make use of Lord George. Lord George, in going to his brother, hoped that even after all that had passed, he might be of use to the Marcus. When he was shown into the sitting room at the hotel, the Marchioness was again there. She no doubt had been tutored. She got up at once and shook hands with her brother-in-law, smiling graciously. It must have been a comfort to both of them that they spoke no common language, as they could hardly have had many thoughts to interchange with each other. I wonder why the deuce you never learned Italian, said the Marcus. We were never thought, said Lord George. No. Nobody in England ever is thought anything but Latin and Greek, with the singular result that after ten or a dozen years of learning, not one in twenty knows a word of either language. That is our English idea of education. In after life, a little French might be picked up from necessity, but it is French of the very worst kind. My wonder is that Englishmen can hold their own in the world at all. They do, said Lord George, to whom all this was ear-piercing blasphemy. The national conviction that an Englishman could thrash three foreigners, and if necessary eat them, was strong with them. Yes, there is a ludicrous strength, even in their pig-headedness. But I always think that Frenchmen, Italians and Prussians must, in dealings with us, be filled with infinite disgust. They must ever be saying, pig, 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 beneath their breath at every turn. They don't dare to say it out loud, said Lord George. They're too courteous, my dear fellow. Then he said a few words to his wife in Italian, upon which she left the room, again shaking hands with her brother-in-law, and then again smiling. Then the Marcus rushed at once into the middle of his affairs. Don't you think, George, that you are an infernal fool to quarrel with me? You have quarrelled with me. I haven't quarrelled with you. Oh, no, not at all. 
when you send lawyers' clerks all over Italy to try to prove my boy to be a bastard. And that is not quarrelling with me. When you accuse my wife of bigamy, that is not quarrelling with me. When you conspire to make my house in the country too hot to hold me, that is not quarrelling with me. How have I conspired? With whom have I conspired? When I explained my wishes about the house at Cross Hall, why did you encourage those foolish old maids to run counter to me? You must have understood pretty well that it would not suit either of us to be near the other, and yet you chose to stick up for legal rights. We thought it better for my mother. My mother would have consented to anything that I proposed. Do you think I don't know how the land lies? Well, what have you learnt in Italy? Lord George was silent. Of course, I know. I'm not such a fool as not to keep my ears and eyes open. As far as your inquiries have gone yet, are you justified in calling Popinjoy a bastard? I have never called him so, never. I've always declared my belief and my wishes to be in his favour. Then why the blank have you made all this rumpus? Because it was necessary to be sure. When a man marries the same wife twice over. Have you never heard of that being done before? Are you so ignorant as not to know that there are a hundred little reasons which may make that expedient? You have made your inquiries now. And what is the result? Lord George paused a moment before he replied and then answered with absolute honesty. It is all very odd to me. That may be my English prejudice, but I do think that your boy is legitimate. You are satisfied as to that? He paused again, meditating his reply. He did not wish to be untrue to the dean, but then he was very anxious to be true to his brother. He remembered that in the dean's presence he had told the lawyer that she would have nothing to do with his further inquiries. He had asked for the lawyer's bill, thereby withdrawing from the investigation. Yes, he said slowly, I am satisfied. And you mean to do nothing further? Again, as he was very slow, remembering how necessary it would be that he should tell all this to the dean, and how full of wrath the dean would be. No, I do not mean to do anything further. I might take this as your settled purpose. There was another pause, and then he spoke. Yes, you may. Then, George, let us try and forget what has passed. It cannot pay for you and me to quarrel. I shall not stay in England very long. I don't like it. It was necessary that the people about should know that I had a wife and son, and so I brought him and her to this comfortless country. I shall return before the winter, and for anything that I care, you may all go back to Manor Cross. I don't think my mother would like that. Why shouldn't she like it? I suppose I was to be allowed to have my own house when I wanted it. I hope there was no offence in that, even to that dragon Sarah. At any rate, you may as well look after the property, and 
if they won't live there, you can. But there's one question I want to ask you. Well? What do you think of your precious father-in-law? And what do you think that I must think of him? Will you not admit that for a vulgar, impudent brute, he is about as bad as even England can supply? Of course, Lord George had nothing to say in answer to this. He is going on with this tombfoolery, I believe. You mean the inquiry? Yes, I mean the inquiry. Whether my son and your nephew is a bastard, I know he put you up to it. I'm right in saying that he has not abandoned it. I think you're right. Then by heaven I'll ruin him. He may have a little money, but I don't think his purse is quite as long as mine. I'll lead him such a dance that he shall wish he'd never heard the name of Germain. I'll make his deanery too hot to hold him. Now, George, as between you and me, this should be all passed over. That poor child is not strong, and after all you may probably be my heir. I shall never live in England, and you're welcome to the house. I can be very bitter, but I can forgive. And as far as you're concerned, I do forgive. But I expect you to drop your precious father-in-law. Lord George was again silent. He could not say that he would drop the dean, but at this moment he was not sufficiently fond of the dean to rise up in his stirrup and fight a battle for him. You understand me, continued the Marquis. I don't want any assurance from you. He is determined to prosecute an inquiry adverse to the honour of your family and in opposition to your settled convictions. I don't think that after that you can doubt about your duty. Come and see me again before long, won't you? Lord George said that he would come again before long, and he departed. As he walked home, his mind was sorely perplexed and divided. He had made up his mind to take no further share in the Popenjoy investigation, and must have been right to declare as much to his brother. His conscience was clear as to that, and then there were many reasons which induced him to feel coldly about the dean. His own wife had threatened him with her father, and the dean was always driving him. And he hated the dean's money. He felt that the dean was not quite all that a gentleman should be. But nevertheless, it behoved him above all things to be honest and straightforward with the dean. There had been something in his interview with his brother to please him, but he had not been all delightful. End of chapter 36 Recorded by Sarah